Recovery Sort Of is a podcast where we discuss recovery topics from the perspective of people living in long-term recovery. This podcast does not intend to represent the views of any particular group, organization, or fellowship. The attitudes expressed are solely the opinion of its contributors. Be advised, there may be strong language or topics of an adult nature. Hi, I'm Jason. I'm a guy in long-term recovery. And I'm Billy. I'm also a person in long-term recovery. And it's recovery, sort of. And I did that backwards this week. I hope y'all like that. So today we're going to talk about the war on drugs. But we're not just going to talk about the war on drugs. We're going to acknowledge this is Black History Month. And in Black History Month, generally we celebrate the contributions from the Black or minority or person of color community And we wanted to kind of take that in a different direction and address people who are people of color who are doing things today, people who are addressing topics that matter to the minority community and contributing to the betterment of society now. And so we're going to have a couple of guests on and we're going to talk about the history of the drug war and how it ties into race and racism. So we're going to have on Cassandra Frederic from Drug Policy Alliance. She is the executive director over there. And also with her, we're going to have one from Legal Action Center, Tracy Gardner, who is the Vice President of Policy Advocacy. And I think they're going to help us explore the idea that the drug war was basically created around racist issues and to continue to marginalize certain populations. What are you hoping to get out of this conversation today? Just that, to to talk about some of how these issues impact minority communities. I mean, we've seen it in poor communities in our rural area, but we're predominantly white. We have a very low minority community here. And you can see how those policies have affected, you know, poor white communities, at least from my personal experience. But I'm not, I've never directly lived in a minority community. So I don't know how some of these policies and things have affected those communities. And just to see some strong black women leading the charge in the war on the war on drugs. <laughs> like it's the new, yeah. it should be the new war. It's the war <laughs> on the war on drugs. That's the fight yeah. we need to be having now. So it'd be great to talk to them. Yeah, I think you're right. I think exploring the topic historically of the drug war and how it's has racial tones to it, along with celebrating just people who are doing things and contributing to the betterment of society, man, the forwarding, the progress, the looking at these things from a different angle, the spreading the word of awareness of where they really stemmed from and how they have not only not worked. I mean, I think it's easy for us to say, oh, the war on drugs doesn't work, but also how they have worked negatively to really just rip apart communities of lower socioeconomic status and and not helped in the least to build up the population of America or the world, you know, anywhere that this is going on. Like it's, it's not helping to keep us all healthier, happier, and in better places. It has really held a lot of people back from getting anywhere in life. Yeah, definitely. And there's a part of this too with, with identity. I think it helps communities. The, the way I think, the way out of this is to, for us as people in the recovery movement and this change movement to get into our 
communities firsthand and help to lift them up? I mean, not that having some bureaucrats or some some policy changes aren't a great thing. They're definitely needed. But it also takes, you know, individuals getting directly into their local communities to help really push these grassroots movements to lift up our damaged communities. Awesome. So let's have them on now and we'll delve in. We have Cassandra Frederic, the Executive Director of Drug Policy Alliance, and we also are blessed with the presence of Tracy Gardner, Vice President of Policy Advocacy at Legal Action Center. And better than us talking a lot and saying a whole lot of stuff, I think the most important thing is to let their voices be heard. So I'm going to let both of them take a turn and tell us a little bit about how they got into the work they do, why their passion is in drug reform or in drug legalization, what it means to do harm reduction policy, anything that affects them and how they got here today. So Cassandra, uh, I work at Drug Policy Alliance uh, and Drug Policy Action, our C4, and I'm the new executive director. I started in September 2020. Uh, (laughs) I started as an intern at DPA in 2009, so I have been there for quite a bit. And, you know, I get asked this question often about drug policy reform, like what was my passion towards it? And I often tell people that I actually didn't know drug policy reform was a thing. I got to the internship by mistake, as in I didn't choose it. (laughs) So I wanted to do something else in criminal justice. I was supposed to be an intern at a different New York City criminal justice organization. And there was an argument between Columbia and that organization. And then Columbia was like, cool, we're not giving you our student. And then Ooh. they were like, see how oh, messy I, I got wait. real quickly? I got so messy so quick. That's um, and then <laughs> I was like, they were like, you can pick between doing anti-racism workshops or you can work with Drug Policy Alliance. They just did Rockefeller drug law reform. And I was like, I wrote that paper in college like five times. I'll go there. Um, and so I ended up at DPA. And honestly, I really was just trying to finish my internship. I didn't understand what they did at all. It's evident by the fact that I was applying for my job after graduation to work at ONDCP. And someone at DPA had to be like, "Um, girl, that's the opposite of what we're doing. And I was like, oh, I thought this would be good on my resume because you guys are like Drug Policy Alliance. This is Office of National Drug Control. Everybody was just like, oh wow, we got to start from the beginning with you. And I was just like, oh, but since I've read a bunch and learned more (laughs) and (laughs) have really seen drug policy as a praxis to reduce the harms associated with being Black in America. That is really what I care about. I care about figuring out how to organize towards freedom. And I think a lot of passion comes from the fact that I grew up in Giuliani, New York City. So I was here. I was born during the time of Dinkins. I don't know much about it, but I came into understanding when I was super young under Giuliani, New York, and I understood things like stop and frisk. I can name a lot of the people that were killed by law enforcement. My first protest um, was around Abner Louima, who got sodomized by law enforcement. Amadou Diallo was the first death where I was just like, oh, Y'all don't care at all, right? And we had like a dare officer come to school and 
I don't think anyone realized how ironic he came when it was like during one of these police killings. And we were just like, no, P.O. Reyes, you have to get out. <laughs> like, we don't, we don't, <laughs> no. We were like in sixth grade passing around like the front page of the post that was talking about a police killing. We were like, is this you, this you, this you? Because this, this black and Latino school, we not, we not about it. So you can leave. I don't care. <laughs> don't leave the stickers. We don't care. So I think for me, that's where my passion comes from is I've always been present to the state violence, right? So I've always been aware of it. Um, and Drug Policy Alliance really gave me a way to organize the way that I think and give me an organizing praxis to do the work that I care so deeply about, which is how do we decriminalize substances, people, and systems. Um, and that praxis comes from the fact that I went to social work school. So I think drug policy for me is how do I turn my rage into action? And I find that drug policy does that for me. Hmm. I like that with the operating theme of rage. So I'm Tracy Gardner and I, you know, again, must say I am so very grateful to Cassandra because in some ways, you know, I am definitely kind of Clint Eastwood, get off my lawn. I came to New York from Western Massachusetts in 1989. So that's when Dinkins was coming into office. And I was delighted to be in New York with the first Black mayor. But my way into this work was kind of personal is political. And so I was my childhood friend to AIDS in 1985. And from that point on, I, you know, we can call it galvanized, we can call it activated, but it was rage. And it was rage also about issues that people didn't want to talk about, primarily sex and drugs. So came to New York in 1989 to work with a community-based organization on HIV, uh, organization in Harlem, the day that Magic Johnson announced that he was HIV positive, you know, the whole community kind of exploded and kind of the impact of HIV on Black people was, I knew it from my friend, but it just, you know, it was also, it was a community issue. It was a equity issue. It was a what we don't want to talk about. It was who do we value and not value. And in that time of HIV in Harlem, there was also a lot of talk about the best way to cure a junkie is death, you know? And so I was working at an organization, small organization that had compassion and knew the stigma around HIV, which was really stigma around sex and stigma around gay people and the stigma around drug use and injection drug use and the association that people had with drug users really created so many problems for people who were affected by HIV. So HIV was kind of my racial justice lens, if you will, because everywhere that HIV appeared was where there was some broken system that was harming Black and Latino people. So HIV brought me to criminal justice because New York for a long time had the highest number of people with HIV in prison in the country. And the reasons for that had a lot to do with the HIV in communities where people were coming from. And people were coming from communities into prison and jail, from communities hard hit 
by laws like the Rockefeller drug laws. In many ways, Rockefeller drug laws fueled HIV infection in um, black and brown communities because of what it did in terms of weakening communities. And that there were only like five or six communities around the state that were feeding something like 80% of the population of the state system, never mind the jails. And so from criminal justice, with substance use issues being all the way in that, you know, that's pretty much kind of informed my career since 89. I stumbled into Legal Action Center in 2000 because I knew their HIV work. And they had an attorney named Katie O'Neill who was just like the boss. And I just wanted to be around her and I would have volunteered for the agency, but they had a state policy position open. And so that's where I went. And uh, Legal Action Center worked a lot with Drug Policy Alliance in dismantling the Rockefeller drug laws. So that was a definitely a big piece of my work at the time. An amazing attorney named Deborah Smalls was leading the Rockefeller work. And then from there, the focus on criminal justice for me, it became that we as a society had made these investments into quote unquote, the carceral system, but it became a healthcare system. And one of the wake up calls for me on that one was in looking at HIV infection rates among black women and seeing that, you know, when you looked at it map wise, the overlay of admissions to prison and HIV infection in women was exact, like they were right on top of each other. And that had a lot to do with the fact that drug policy and other law enforcement interventions and actions were destabilizing communities and making communities more vulnerable to HIV infection if for the sheer number of just removing or recycling Black men and women in and out of the community and the poor health of the correction system. So my work has always been about helping people understand the why of the what. And this was a big revelation for me to see the clear connection between correctional health and community health and the fact that there are systems that perpetuate that. So fast forward a little bit, and we used to have this commercial on TV that was like, I'm not only the hair club president, I'm a client. For me, I got to learn firsthand the addiction treatment system because of my own struggles with substance use disorder. And this was in the early 2000s. And what I got was harsh family court involvement because I was in treatment and I had my children taken from me because there was nothing worse than a black woman who was using substances, including crack, and that everything was a nail and everything got a hammer. So that experience of both the family court system, the criminal legal system, and the addiction treatment system taught me how deeply embedded systemic racism was in these systems and that there wasn't an interest at all in rehabilitation or corrections or treatment even. So that made a a big impact on then how I 
moved in the work. Growing up professionally in HIV, I always knew, you know, this notion of people who are closest to the problem are closest to the solution and that the best policy is made when it involves people that it impacts. But since coming into recovery, being able to speak from my experience as a Black woman, as a woman involved in the quote-unquote child protective system, as a woman involved in the treatment system and having been through a number of different modalities of it, I can say that all of it needs to be thrown out. It just needs to be thrown into a bin and set on fire and we need to start all over again. And that history will look back on how we treated people with a health issue with horror because it's medieval. So I'll close by saying that right now, a lot of my work is focused on the opportunities of the new administration and the new Congress. And um, we're doing a lot of work on something called the Medicaid Reentry Act, which it allows Medicaid, which can't be used to pay for care for anybody in, who's incarcerated. But this act will allow for Medicaid to pay for care for people in the last 30 days of their incarceration or the first 30 days, because 80 to 90 percent of people come home from their incarceration experience. And where people in particular are at risk is as they're transitioning from the carceral system into the community. And it took the impact of the overdose opiate epidemic on white people to understand that the mortality of people who've used opiates when they're coming out of prison or jail is like 120 times worse than non-opiate drug use. And so that has fueled this act, which is great. But I can also say, having done this work for 30 years now, that this has been something that we've been trying to make happen in the advocacy world for decades. Medicaid law has been in place since 1965. And the recognition of the impact of denying uh, Medicaid coverage to people because they're involved in the justice system is also what has us in trouble today because the healthcare system is racist and you can't get the healthcare system to do anything unless you monetize it. So that's some of the work. I do some of the pointy head policy work, but my passion is this work like with the Black Harm Reduction Network and working with Cassandra. And there's a bunch of us kind of running around elevating this idea that almost everything you know in how this country is set up is based on shadow slavery and everything that grew out of that, every single element. And in the addiction treatment system and in the justice reform area, not acknowledging that means we're going to be at risk of repeating it. Wow, a lot of information there. And I thank you both. And really what I thank you for, I think, is just the work you do. It's just incredible to me. I think it's work that needs to be done how to say this in a polite way. I think there are racist people. And then I think there's other people who just support the ideas of the drug war or drug policy because they've been sold that that's what makes sense and they don't understand. Where it to comes highlight, from. Yeah, just to highlight some of this. So segregation supposedly ended in 1964 and kind of people who didn't feel like that was a good idea didn't have any new way to talk about racism or white supremacy openly. And so 
from that point, to the best of my understanding, they kind of decided to come up with code words and law and order and, you know, all these terms around the fact that we were going to be tough on crime and the drug war started out of that. Going into Nixon, a lot of policies around the criminal justice system and drug policy and things that don't measure up, right? When we look at the facts, marijuana is not really a drug that is all that harmful. And yet it's been listed as a schedule one, ignoring all the recommendations of the people in his administration that said, hey, this doesn't belong as a schedule one. It's really not that bad for you. But we ignore that because, well, we can use it to arrest people. Like Nixon's enemies were, you know, hippies and black people, basically. And he found ways to make sure that it was illegal to be either. And so from there, obviously, you talk about the Rockefeller drug logs. We get up to that where it's mandatory minimums. It's, you know, increasing sentences. But even then, that's only enforced in communities that are of minority population. Like we, we know that there's more white drug dealers out there, but we're not enforcing or policing for Rockefeller drug laws in their communities. And then you get into Reagan and you talk about all these white people do cocaine, but we're going to take the same drug that's sold by black people as crack, even though it's the exact same chemical composition, but for crack, we're going to have much higher sentences because that's what's, it's just this whole focus and code words and everything that has led this to be a, a racial issue, not a war on drugs. It's more of a war on minorities, it seems. And even if nobody that just listened to that believes that, the numbers of how it's enforced bear it out. So whether that was the original intention or not, I don't want to argue with anybody. Maybe that wasn't the original intention. Maybe they it really was. just... Oh, it certainly well, was. I, I totally hear... I agree with what you're saying. What I'm saying is that it actually was because the drug war... Drug prohibition in general is a racialized tool of social oppression. And that doesn't start at Nixon. That starts in the 1800s. The first drug laws in the U.S. were against Chinese migrants in San Francisco. They made opium illegal, but not all forms of opium, just the forms of opiums that were associated with Chinese migrants because white people were using opium. So they didn't make the way their modes of use illegal the way that white, it was perceived that white people used it just the way that Chinese folks were perceived their mode of use. And so I think what's really important is, yes, in June, it's going to be the 50th anniversary of Nixon declaring the war on drugs in our modern society. And I hear you, Jason, when you're like, folks are like, it's, it's the drug, race has nothing to do about it. But I think it's because everyone starts at the Nixon thing and they pull the Ehrlichman quote. And what I would offer is that we have 100 more years of evidence that show that this was about race. And in fact, a Black man wrote a book about it. His name is Troy Duster. He wrote the book called The Legislation of Morality. And that book was actually published in 1969. And he used 100 years of history. Now, remember what I just said. 1969, that book was published. 1969, 1970. Nixon declared the war on drugs in 1971 which means that we already knew what time it was when it came to drug laws, right? And that the history, the main thesis of the book is that drug laws are not based on the pharmacology of the drug. They're based on the perceived face of the dominant user population race. And so when you're thinking about things like opium, heroin, marijuana, why we even use the word marijuana in the United States and everybody else uses cannabis is because they wanted to associate it in the Southwest of Mexicans, right? That's and right. so I think one of the things that is really important about drug policy, and it's the point that you're making, Jason, is that there's no both sides of this issue of, is the drug war racist? Drug prohibition was fueled to 
control people racially. And so there's no like, oh, there were other things and treatment and everyone was addicted and we wanted people. No, it was used as a way to exploit a group of people that had come to this country, had given their labor, were exploited. And then the U.S. was like, mm, y'all getting too comfortable here. And now we have to control you. And both Tracy and I know that this is how the U.S. rolls, because technically we shouldn't be on this hemisphere. Right. Like we we are on this hemisphere because they wanted to use us to exploit us for labor. Right. And so I think the thing that is really important for readers to understand is that you cannot separate the way that we control drugs in this country from the way that they use that drug control as a praxis to control people that are not white. And what I would also add is that I think it's really important to show what the opportunity around fighting the drug war is. For a multiracial campaign, because the overdose crisis, everyone says the, the rhetoric, right, which is like they didn't treat white people the way they treat black people. But I want to be really specific. They didn't treat white people with means the way they treated black people. Poor white people have been getting the short end of the stick for a long time when it comes to drugs. And you see that in the way that they've divested their health infrastructure. You see that in the way that they have incarcerated white people for drugs. A lot of people went down from that. A lot of people have gone down. A lot. It's, it's super important for us to be really precise. It is white people with money that are not getting locked up, right? White people with insurance. But these poor white people, they're getting their ass handed to them because when you create a machine, it has to eat. And so therefore, right. the machine can go through the dark meat. But once the dark meat is done, they still got to eat. They eat, <laughs> they will eat that white meat, <laughs> right? And they have. And you see it across. Look at the states that are struggling with overdose, right? It's That's the West right. Virginias. It's the Kentuckys. It is states that did not do the Medicaid expansion, right? It's the exactly. states that don't have universal health care. It's the states that have economic depressions, right? Like this thing, it starts as a race thing, but that class thing is right there. And, and it right shows there. up. And it's important because it's also about the historical context. And the only way we're actually going to win this is when we actually do, as the chairman, Fred Hampton says, like when we actually build that multiracial democracy where people actually see that like the people at the top are setting it up for us to be fighting against each other, fighting against the drug sellers. So you lock people out of the regular economy. So people get locked up for drugs, right? They come out. They can't get a job because their records are messed up. They can't do anything that has to do with these issues. We see it in the cannabis space. You got cannabis now legal. People that sold cannabis before can't get into the industry. Why? Records, no access to capital. They're not a safe bet for loans, business loans. from. So it's like this whole thing, this thing was intentional. And I think that that's what's really important is that it was an intentional political tool of social oppression around race, around class, around gender right? Around like nationality. The reason why they also targeted those Chinese migrants was because it was anti-immigrant. That was one of the first like anti-immigrant laws was drugs. They have used drugs as a practice for classism, for racism, but also xenophobia. And I think it's really important that when we tell the story of race and the drug war, we can't start at Nixon because it gives people an out, right? Like, oh, drug use is going up and all. It's like, nah, From the beginning, the first drug laws were about Chinese people, not even black people, Chinese people who came here to build a railroad and then got exploited. And it wasn't even all of opium. It was just the way that Chinese people were using it. 
And it, it really is like focusing us to be like, there is no other way. Because I think the thing right now, especially in such a polarized time, is people are looking for other excuses. So they move away from race. And so that's why I bring the story to the 1880s, because I think like, what do you say there? What else was happening there where you can have this conversation? Why do we use the word marijuana, which happened in the 30s? Why don't we use cannabis, right? And then you can get to the 70s because the 70s give us a whole lot of stuff to talk about. But that first hundred years, there's a whole book on it, right? There's a whole book on it. Before Richard Nixon even declared the war on drugs, a black man wrote a book and said, this drug thing, this drug thing right here is about race. It's not about anything else but race. I think it's super important because I think people just have to make the decision. Like, I don't care if you think you're racist or not, you support racist policy, right? And so like, Mm. that's really what it is. And you can't deny the historical roots. And you can say like, I think that deterrence is a way for us to deal with addiction and blah, 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 blah. You can say that. You can have those opinions. We can argue back and forth on that. But what we can't argue on is the roots of the drug war were racist. That's absolutely it. Not to mention the fact that what I was saying earlier, the politics and the politics of capitalism that we don't speak about enough, Nixon actually was forward thinking in his approach to heroin addiction because the Vietnam vets were coming home with it. There was a whole panel commission set up to talk about how to get medications to Vietnam vets who were coming home addicted to opiates. And that brings in all of these more modern things that we now know that these men and women coming out of war situations are traumatized. The idea of using medications, using drugs to self-soothe, and that it wasn't until Nixon needed to gear up the presidential machinery for the run that he was encouraged to be more punitive, but he started out looking at this more therapeutically. And so I marvel at the fact that there's so much more information that's available now. A lot of it is is not accurate, but a lot of it is, and much more information is available than was. So the excuse of not understanding what the roots are, right? We can fuel a whole, what, QAnon conspiracy about politicians eating babies and drinking blood, but we don't want to believe in the racist underpinnings of the history of this country and how othering is public policy. Othering, the ability to marginalize stigma is oppression. I always say that if you think about the word stigma, when you're using the word stigma, Switch out stigma and just say oppression. And then it explains what it does, how it's used, you know, what it ultimately is for, is to marginalize, to crush people, to keep them down, right? Fighting stigma is about fighting oppression. People don't want to acknowledge that who's doing the oppressing, the systems in which we have built these inequities around race and around class. And the point that Cassandra brings up about how much this country hates rural whites, that's been going on, right? That is kind of some of the underpinnings of even the Civil War. Really, this concentration of wealth and power among 2% of the population and the inequity that it spawns and that we're fighting one another instead of addressing that. We would have no movement on the overdose epidemic if it didn't have an impact on the children of wealth. And that's 
what really got it happening. I worked for a politician whose name I'm not going to mention. And I know for a fact he was getting calls from donors whose children were struggling with drugs, whose children were engaging in criminal acts. And they were like, this cannot be for my children. We have to figure out a better way, a gentler way, a health approach. That conversation did not start in earnest until the children of wealth started being impacted. And I can't thank you enough for interjecting there and putting that out there. And I think this is the exact reason that Billy and I don't want to do this kind of podcast by ourselves. We want to have the experts on to like, please come help us get a better understanding as we go. We have some understanding, but the more we can hear it and the more we learn and the more viewpoints we get, the better we're going to understand this to continue the process of fighting it ourselves. That's right. And I love that it was framed from both of you as this isn't just minorities. This isn't just people of color. Like this is people who don't have means because that makes a lot of sense. And it's much more inclusive, right? It feels like it's not so black versus white now. It's like, oh, hey, like maybe we're all in this together and all kind of getting screwed over in this process. That's absolutely right. This episode has been brought to you by Voices of Hope, Inc., a nonprofit grassroots recovery community organization located in Maryland. Voices of Hope is made up of people in recovery, family members, and allies. Together, members strive to protect the dignity and respect of those that use drugs and those in recovery by advocating for treatment, support resources, and mentoring. Please visit us at www.voicesofhopececilmd.org and consider donating to our cause. We're in a particularly like rural area here in Maryland. It's a very low minority community. But like you said, we still see in the poor communities the same policies and, and the same effects on those communities mm-hmm. where there's single moms raising kids mm-hmm. in poverty and continual right. perpetual cycle of the young men in and out of jail mm-hmm. and incarcerated. And, you know, it's easy for people to say, well, see, it's not racist, but it is definitely based in some mm-hmm. racial policies and now into like a class warfare That's thing. Right. and. I think it is important for us to look for people that are our allies. So like for us in our small community, when we can look, I mean, just to get funding and stuff, look to some of the bigger cities like Baltimore City, find Mm -hmm. some allies down there in some of those communities to say, we need to fight to change some of these policies. They haven't worked for the past hundred years. You know, why do we keep doing this and harming the most vulnerable in our society? Like it's, it's sad. That's right. So let's talk about why that is so important. And even using Maryland as an example, states that have a combination of rural, quote unquote, conservative, predominantly white versus urban, suburban, where it's more mixed or it's more black and brown communities. The lawmakers that perpetuate, it's not just about federal law. It's about the patchwork of state law that makes for some states to be able to do better and some states to be wallowing in misery because of mindsets, right? 
the rejection of quote unquote Obamacare and the Medicaid expansion is one of the most important examples of where talk about cutting off your nose to spite your face because lawmakers were happy to deny their constituents broader health access so that they wouldn't give the win to the black president, right? And then at the state level, if rural conservative plus suburban urban weigh in on an issue, it will change. When the perception that it's benefiting one or another, and this is a big feature in New York where I do most of my work, then it doesn't happen. But the overdose epidemic has definitely helped people understand that it is equal opportunity and that it really speaks to kind of structural inequities fueled by race, but now having an impact on, or always, on white people. It thrives in poverty, right? So in New York, as in other places, there are fewer treatment programs available, fewer alternatives to incarceration, fewer diversion programs, lots of local jails, lots of jobs for COs, lots of investment in the punitive system rather than the therapeutic system. And I listened to a couple of your podcasts too. And, you know, the other piece is I'm not knocking 12-step at all, but understanding fundamentally that it was a system segregation, if you will, of health issues of the mind, mental health and addiction from health issues of the body, right? That the healthcare system that is fueled by elite medical schools did not want to deal with people with mental abnormalities. That has been consigned to mental hygiene arena. And what did those health issues get? They got mental institutions. They got jail. You know, we're still talking about trying to make medications available to people in jail. How about we give them in the community so they don't have to go to jail? In New York, a big discussion is being able to close Rikers Island. And the reality is we can't close Rikers Island because Rikers Island serves as a hospital. It serves as a healthcare provider for people with mental illness and people with addiction. And that reflects our investments. We didn't invest in the community. So the people who had those issues unaddressed ended up in the justice system and inside the jails and other correctional systems. And that is also now what's happening upstate. People are going to jail. Even as we're emptying the jails because of COVID, the people who are ending up in jail are the people with unaddressed, untreated mental illness and addiction. So there is a lot of work For me, this fundamentally boils down to, as a person in recovery, if you are not somewhat active in the, not just the electoral process, but understanding what's going on, knowing who your representatives are, being involved, being aware, then you are not helping another. You are not helping another. And that also goes to the whole bifurcation between people who use drugs versus people who are in recovery and absent from all drugs right? There are laws that protect people who are in recovery, who are abstinent. If I relapse tomorrow, I no longer have the protection. What's different? What's changed? Why don't I deserve it? Because this hierarchy of who doesn't use, who uses, that it's full abstinence or gradations that we talk about as harm reduction. 
But what it does is it has created another caste system within the world of people who use drugs. The people who use drugs are the predominant. The people who have problematic drug use are the minority. Being in abstinence for decades is unusual. It is an abnormality. In 12-step, we elevate it. And it's great because it does save people's lives, but it is not normal. And that's why people talk about the opposite of active use is connection. Because with that connectivity, with that fellowship, you're able to do that. But let's not be fooled. Being able to be abstinent for decades is unusual. It is not normal. Most people are using drugs at different points in time in their life. And let's not ever forget that alcohol is our biggest drug. Please compare the mortalities associated with alcohol with the mortalities associated with cannabis. That usually just shuts it down. We are not being real with our young people and have not been real with our young people for a long time when we try to equate the two. So that has to change. I always try to tell Billy with his decades, he's an abnormal guy. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Tracy, we have addressed that on here a couple of times, how ridiculous it would be to walk into a doctor with a broken arm and have him guess at what was the best treatment, you know, as treatment centers do for addiction or mental health and possibly give you a decent treatment and then tell you he hopes it works and right. just go or home. look up on the wall. See these 12 points? If you follow <laughs> these 12 points, your arm will heal. Right. 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 Exactly. And that's all you need. Don't, right. don't ask me for any medication. That's all you need. I, I wanted to bring something up from uh, what Billy was talking about, because I actually do believe that drugs and the drug war give us a real opportunity for us to do multiracial organizing. And I think part of it is because there's a cognitive dissonance that is happening because so much of the public narrative around drugs is that it's bad for you. You shouldn't do it. And that's why Black people are like so poor and that's why they're all incarcerated, right? Like, and I think it's so interesting because I find that drugs are often used as a scapegoat in society and they distract people from asking the bigger question that is actually going to get to the root of the issue. When we're saying, well, why are all these, you know, people for a long time, mass incarceration was happening and folks were just like, oh, it's just because Black people have a higher level of criminality, right? When people were talking about, you know, crack, for example, you know, it's actually more white people who use crack, but the popular mainstream face of crack was black people. Right. And I think that it creates this kind of cognitive dissonance. And there was this narration that drugs were an issue of the urban person of color. And then the overdose crisis came and the face of that crisis in mainstream media was this white person who was of of means, right? Like the accidental addict, the cheerleader, the grandma, the football player, right? And I think the overdose crisis gives us this opportunity because everyone's trying to navigate, well, how did this happen? And so now all of a sudden the doctors are in, like the doctors are the reason why we are all, you know, and the doctors definitely have some responsibility for it. Then it's like, and then these big ass companies, the prescription people, you know, that terrible, they did this to us. And it was just like, or as the research shows, most of the people that are addicted to prescription drugs did not get those prescription drugs from their doctor. That's what the research bears out. The research bears out, sure. 
the doctors flooded the market. Sure, you can have that narrative. But the people that got addicted, based on the research, did not get those drugs from the doctor. Those drugs were for somebody else. So now what is the question? Right? The question is not what, what were the doctors doing? The question is, why did you have pills that didn't belong to you? And what were you searching for in those pills? And what has society not given you that you needed to use those pills to deal with? That's right. That's the bigger question, right? And That's the thing right. is, is that white people are asking that question the same way that we should be asking that guy on the street that's using heroin, right? It's like that conversation, like what is missing for people? Because if the opposite of addiction is connection, then a lot of people are disconnected in this country. That's right. And where is that disconnection coming from? And in this moment of cognitive dissonance, if communities are asking each other, like, when did that disconnection start for you? If we could start having that conversation across and start pointing to what are the things that pulled us out of connection, I think that's going to get us to a better understanding as opposed to Let's block prescriptions. Let's do all this stuff. Like that's the conversation. But because race is so weaponized in this country, you get things like Governor LePage in Maine who says, Jay Smooth and Ty Boogie are coming up to Maine and addicting (laughs) our white daughters and impregnating them. And then they're leaving, right? Like that's what you're getting, right? And then you're getting people having to protect whiteness. Because now they have to find out an excuse as to why they have the same behaviors as that black person on the corner. Like now you got to find excuses as to why you still are deserving of whiteness and preserving that power. Right. And then that's when you bring in the doctors. That's when you bring in the big prescription. I'm not absolving them of what they did. But what I'm also saying is that there are a lot of people that got those same prescriptions that never got addicted. And majority of the people didn't get addicted, right? That's right. And so it's important for us to recognize that drugs are often used as a scapegoat to not ask the broader societal questions and that there's an opportunity here for us to have a conversation across race to say like, how is it messing us up? And here's the thing, we have been here before. Right. We were here before when we had indentured servitude, poor people coming from European companies who came here, right? And who were doing the labor like, enslaved Africans. And then there was the conversation when they started organizing and then all of a sudden they cut it. And then all of a sudden they was like, well, you may be poor, but we're going to, you don't have to do indentured servitude for the rest of your life. You can do it for a couple of years and then you could be like us, right? Like us. They, That's they, right. They, they did that. They have done this before. This is one of those things where it's cyclical, right? Our society hasn't learned the lesson. So we keep having to do it over and over again. Drug baby is our lesson. We can get it right this time where we actually build the multiracial power to take over the ruling class, which is using drugs as a way to control us. Right. I think we're in a moment now, if for no other reason, what Cassandra says is what's playing out now. COVID is showing us so much, including the fact that what people do when they get disconnected, right? I can tell you, I have been amazed at the number of people who are coming into the 12-step rooms who have never been in an actual space because this situation, this kind of overall worldwide trauma of a pandemic is now that thin veneer that kept, you know, people kind of stabilized in their normalcy, uh, stabilized in their, well, at least I got, at least I'm this. Now we're starting to see it. The people who have always been at the quote unquote bottom are really acutely feeling this 
But this sense of isolation, this sense of mental illness and mental health fragility, COVID is teaching us that we have to address it in ways that we haven't been willing before. And once you know what you know, you don't go backwards. We're not going to go back from this and telehealth, for example. We're not going to go back to a, a whole bunch of things that we now know we can do with COVID. This experience has definitely been the leveler. I think it has created insight into what it is for people who use drugs who, and alcohol, who use drugs and alcohol problematically, what it is that they're the why, as Cassandra pointed out. We have to get to the why. We have to ask the why. In typical treatment programs, we don't ask the why. It's like, oh, well, it's because you're an addict. It's because you're an alcoholic. Well, why? Right? Yeah, it's genetic. Yeah, it's environmental. Yeah, it's family. But why do you self-soothe this way? And then why do we villainize the other ways that people self-soothe, whether it's coffee, uh, cigarettes, the gym, you know what I mean? Like we are creatures who self-soothe. That's what we do. And when it gets out of hand, there's an imbalance. This is what I believe. But I have not been in any rooms of 12-step where I don't hear about some kind of level of trauma that people are trying to address. And sometimes it's their own. It's just their own. It's not what would be traumatizing to anyone else. And again, we have allowed what is fundamentally was a religious program to become therapeutic care. And we've got to pull ourselves into 21st century addiction treatment, which is about looking at the whole person and looking at how they got to where the use is problematic. Instead of villainizing and criminalizing, why do we do P-tests? What does that tell us? What does that tell us except you're wrong or you're right? You made a mistake or you're right. What does that tell us? We are on the verge of pulling ourselves literally into the 21st century of healthcare by addressing addiction and mental illness the way we need to, which is that brain and that body go together. Yeah, and I know I've felt, you know, over the last couple of years, the podcast has been amazing for me to sort of research and dig into some of these topics. Like for years, when I first got clean, I was the typical like abstinence is the only way. This is all that works. And then over the years, like my wife got heavily involved with a grassroots organization to help addiction and treatment in our area. And so that sort of brought on some conversations and things. And you start to learn about things like ACEs and like the, you know, adverse childhood experiences and, you know, why people turn to self-soothe because of their social, mental, and physical problems. And it's been very educational, sort of getting into the war on drugs. As we sort of move forward, like, what do you see as some of the, say, immediate policies, but some of the things we need can be doing right now, like obviously changing some of these drug laws to stop locking up anyone that possesses marijuana. I think we're starting to see some of that. But what is, I guess, for Cassandra more, what is your organization doing specifically now to try to change some of the policies to address some of those issues? So for DPA, we are all in on decriminalization. We believe that we need to decriminalize drug possession. Um, And honestly, we're starting to have the conversation about sales uh, because people, a lot of people are in that space because of the same reasons why people use drugs, right? And being a part of that market is a larger conversation about how people are able to provide for themselves. The other thing that we think is super important is that we need to decriminalize supports and systems. 
So a lot of these systems that we ask people to go to, be it treatment, be it housing, be it employment, all these systems are still punishing people who use drugs. That's right. In order to gain access and to gain support, our love comes with conditions. And I think that that is really hard because some people can meet those conditions and then a lot of people can't. And then therefore we don't actually give people many alternatives. And so one of the things that we're doing and we're getting a lot of flack for, we need to disrupt the relationship between treatment and the criminal justice system. It cannot be connected because here's the thing. When you connect treatment with the criminal justice system, the influence only works one way. The criminal justice system influences treatment. Treatment does not influence the law enforcement. And if it does, it's never at the same proportion. And my dear colleague, Denise Thomasini Joshi, she often says that. She was like, the influence works overwhelmingly one way. And, you know, you see this, you know, in Maryland, actually, I was in a fight with some folks um, in one of the newspapers because with COVID, the district attorney said, I'm no longer going to prosecute drug possession because I want to stem the flow into congregate spaces like jails and prisons. And you literally had a treatment facility get in the paper talking about we're losing money because we can't fill beds. And I'm like, why can't you fill beds without people forcing them to go in there? And then the question is, oh, well, people who struggle with addiction don't want treatment. It's like, why aren't we asking the question, why isn't your treatment attractive to people who are struggling with addiction? Right. Like, why is it we automatically point at the individual and not look at why the system is not set up to meet the needs that is not responsive to different people? Right. It was interesting because people were going back and forth. And I was like, I'm not fighting with y'all. If your main revenue stream is from the criminal legal system, we can't play this game. Right. And I'm a social worker and I get in trouble with that because, you know, in the summer when everyone was talking about defund the police, we just need more police officers in the police station. I was like, absolutely not. That is not our role. I mean, like the cognitive dissonance, but also the mixed messaging we give people. Like my friend who works in DV, she's like, love is not supposed to hurt. And I'm like, okay, so in DV situations, we say love is not supposed to hurt. But in the treatment facilities, we say love hurts. In the housing, we say love hurts. No, we have to decide. Our love is not supposed to hurt, right? And if we want to support people and the system that is set up, giving money to support people, it's not supposed to love people with conditions. I'm not your mama. Me, I can have conditions. You know, if I have a loved one who's struggling, I could be like, yo, I can support you up to here. After here, I have to protect my energy and you have to figure something else out because we can't have a navigation. But a system that is set up to supposed to help you, they need to figure it out. And I think that for us at DPA, we are saying like, no, because before we just be like, you know, treatment instead of incarceration. And it turns out treatment is bunk. <laughs> so now we're like, what is it? Out. Okay. <laughs> Let's talk about treatment. You try to push us and we're trying to say, cool, you know, I'm an abolitionist. So I'm like, tear the thing down, build something new. Right. And so it's like the build something new can't be with the treatment that we have now. And so the policies that we're looking at is we need treatment principles and we need other organizations to start taking on the treatment industry because they are out of control. They are very much in the same pocket as the, the prescription people. Everyone's suing them right now. Let's start getting some class action suits against some of these treatment facilities. Mm. If, if you want to be honest, that's not what DPA is going to do currently. It's not currently in our strategic plan, but I'm saying <laughs> <laughs> we have on it. We see it and we're going to start talking about it a little bit more. And then understanding that I think for us is like decriminalizing the possession of, of drugs, right? Figuring out what to do with drug sales. I think decriminalizing systems. And so we have a project coming out this week called Uprooting the Drug War, which is 
going to expose the way that other systems enforce the drug war. So Jason, when you were talking about your, you know, records and all that stuff, it, that is not secondary. That is the drug war. That is the system of employment figuring out how they can do their version of the drug war. Right. And so you don't need to pee in a cup to fold some t-shirts at Walmart. It don't make sense. Right. What are we Why doing? Why are we here? doing this? <laughs> like, Why are we doing like, it? We're not, we're not asking these guys on Wall Street to pee in a cup while they play with imaginary money and rob our, our economy. <laughs> are they doing that? No. So it's like, it, and that's another thing of the class and the race, you know what I'm saying? So it's that. And then it's also, it doesn't make sense for DPA to be like, all right, we're going to decriminalize people. We're going to decriminalize people who use drugs. But a lot of times people who use drugs are also homeless. They're also involved in sex work. So it's like, okay, so we did our part. You're not going to be decriminalized for drugs no more. But you, you just go get popped from this. You're on your own for the rest. You can of just it. get popped. You know, so while we're not going to work on those issues, we're going to work with those movements. Because we want our people to be, be decriminalized at all systems, right? And that that shouldn't be predicated based on how organized the movement is. And it shouldn't be predicated about how resourced the movement is, right? People resource the drug world because, frankly, white people want access to their drugs. They want their weed. They want their mushrooms. They could give a shit less about people who use heroin. And so it's like, you know, it's like, you know, some people. So not all people, but some people. And I think for us, it's like, how do we start redistributing the resource? so that we make sure that the drug war ends for everyone. And I think the movement that I look at this a lot with is the HIV AIDS movement, because that money came in. And when you look at the rates of the people who are still being affected, it's people of color. It's not white people like that anymore. And part of it is because the AIDS epidemic ended for white people in some ways and not for everyone else. We cannot do that for the drug war. And that means that we have to be unapologetically intersectional focused on drugs, but not ignorant to everything else. That's right. That's beautiful. I think we can go over the numbers. It's easy enough to look up exactly how the drug war has disparagingly affected Black communities, Black people. And and feel free to throw some of them out too, because just because we can look them up doesn't mean people are actually looking them up. But I think Billy and I were really interested too in like, what does this look like? Because look, it's easy to say, oh man, those people far, far away are being hurt by this, but personalize this. What did this look like in the communities you guys grew up in? Like, how did this affect the families next door or, or your own families or any way that you'd love to talk about it that gives it a more personal feel? Like, what did this actually do to your communities, this war on drugs? I mean, and again, my community is... Black people affected by racist systems, right? So anywhere you go in the country, with the exception of a handful of wealthy Black enclaves, anywhere you go in the country, you're going to see how policies that have their roots in othering and controlling Black people and then just continue to be perpetuated to affect other people. It has created less than healthy communities, right? We do patchwork, band-aid approaches to things that are broken. I was always impressed that when Bill Gates' philanthropy did work in Africa, they didn't just work on the water system or educating children or getting reproductive health care to women. They selected an area and they did everything. They funded everything because it's all connected. And so where I have seen that that has had an impact is that 
we band-aid the core health structures. And I don't mean just healthcare structures, but the structures that influence health in communities, whether we're talking about food deserts, whether we're talking about not enough federally qualified health centers, whether we're talking about not enough black and brown healthcare providers, which is a big issue for us. And for me, I, my war is with the healthcare system, right? The healthcare system has a role in the drug war by criminalizing health issues, criminalized mental illness, it criminalized addiction and threw it away. So my work until I die is to get the healthcare system's neck in my fist and drag it to the people it should have been addressing all along. You talk about segregation and segregation and racism in healthcare has contributed to so many deaths. What we're seeing now in COVID is the legacy of racism in healthcare, right? And so that is the work. Part of it is incentive, but the other part of it needs to be to drag them kicking and screaming into caring for the people that they need to care for. And I am heartened that there is a generation of healthcare providers, a generation of doctors and nurses who get the social construct. They get the social justice element of their work. They are getting it in medical school. They are, they are seeing the discrepancy and how we treat medications for people with addictions very differently. Why is methadone regulated by a criminal justice agency? Right? Like, never mind what the whole 12 step attitude is about methadone. Methadone is a medication. Why do we have judges able to tell people when they can get on or off of methadone or buprenorphine? That's the work that I look at, which is that it needs to be a holistic approach. And as Cassandra mentioned too, there are other systems that are perpetuating the drug war. What the child protective system has done to families that have a drug problem, particularly mothers. What happened to families where parents were um, struggling with meth? It's the same thing they did with crack. It's the same thing. And then they don't care about how those children are impacted by the way the parents were addressed. So that is a bit of work, not a bit. It's a big piece of work that we also have to address where the state in protecting the children actually does more harm to the children by not supporting the family, by not supporting the parents who are struggling, by criminalizing them. Because it certainly did not help my treatment to take me away from my children. And the cases where children get hurt by parents who are either quote unquote neglectful or who abuse children are the exception. We shouldn't have whole policies based on those exceptions. So for, for me personally, you know, my children are adults. We have been able to thrive and have a, a whole family life that systems try to destroy. And partly that's because I was employed and I was able to pay for the care that I should have gotten through these systems that were ostensibly trying to protect my children and trying to heal me. I had insurance. And that is very unusual. But what of the other Black women with children in these systems? 
They don't fare as well as I do. And I am aware of that discrepancy and I will fight to eliminate that discrepancy until I die. And we had a direct family incident. We had a family member. She suffered an overdose and was Narcan. And her first phone call was to my wife to see what she should do versus calling like a healthcare person because she was scared that if she called the doctors or the paramedics or 911, they'd come in and want to take her kids away. That's right. It's like sad that she's got to weigh all that out in the midst of a health crisis. You know, you have to weigh out that the state's going to come in and take your children away. And what does that say? And what does that (laughs) say? That you literally are brought back to life. And your first thought is, how can I protect my family? Not how can I get myself more help? Right. And then we had another incident with a gentleman and he had to fight through the court system. So he was addicted and X was addicted and had a child that he didn't even know about. The child was taken away and placed into foster care. So he found out about the child, got involved. It took him two and a half years. He had been clean at that point. I think he had been in recovery five years, maybe a little more. He had to actually fight in the court system for two and a half years to get custody back for his child that they wanted to give his child over to the foster parents even though now he was in recovery and clean and wanted to take full custody, was in a stable home with a stable job. You know, it's just, it was crazy the amount of work that it took to try to keep a family together because of some past drug use. It's sad. Yeah, and most people miss the fact that the child welfare system is also based in racism, right? Like that whole system was created to like take indigenous children away from their families and give them to white people, right? And so again, you know, this whole like, it's about helping the kids, like that system is predicated on removing non-white kids from their families. And people don't realize that also baked in, in some places, some states give more money to foster families to take care of these kids than they ever would to the biological parents. Right. So there's an incentivization here to disrupt families. And a lot of these child, the the allegations are based on something called amorphous thing called the neglect. Right. And a lot of those issues around neglect are around like poverty or drugs. Right. So oftentimes when people hear like, oh, child welfare is here, everyone's thinking of the worst, the scariest thing. Right. And most of it is not that. I think what's often really important is it's always interesting to me to hear folks' recovery story because I think so much of the journey is influenced by certain things like, are you going back to your family? Can you get a job? Do you have money? Are you food secure? Are you disrupting your from your family? And I think that that proximity is like based on money and it's also based on race. I think that it's really important to realize that um, how much you are reliant on systems of care in this country really shapes how you're able to access recovery or not. So in our local community, we have a a local hospital that really stigmatizes the using community. They don't serve that community. In fact, they turn people away. They're not, you know, it's like if you come in with a drug problem, they will almost send you back out the door and just be like, we don't even want to deal with you. What is a way to to try to get that to change? Like, like, what do you do to try to change that fighting against your local healthcare providers to get services for people in need? They've taken on at their organization a, a wound care nurse that will go out into the poor communities. And he's a volunteer. You know, yeah. he, it's not something that the local hospital wants to do. It's a local volunteer that wants to go out into these communities because they're tired of being treated like shit 
by the hospital or being shamed and, and treated like they're second class citizens. You know, they got to get services from a guy in a van. It's sad. And what can be done to change that? <laughs> One of the things, the immediate things that I'm thinking about is build around that person, build around people that want to be in the medical profession that have an interest in supporting it have that person teach other people how to do wound care. I think one of the biggest things that I would offer, I think part of this comes from the fact that it is disappointing when the systems that are supposed to help you don't want to help you. But I was born into an identity where the systems don't want to help me because they were never supposed to help me. And so part of that survival strategy is to build the thing that we know we deserve. And I think one thing about being in this movement, the drug policy movement, is that People that use drugs have built their own healthcare structures. Mm -hmm. And I would say you have a really good resource in this person who wants to do wound care. And I think about a community in upstate New York where there was an ER physician who also felt like that. And she created her own organization and got funding from different people. And the community rallied around them and have created their own healthcare. And then now the hospital is like, well, well. We're supposed, well, we're supposed to be doing this. And now they're like trying to figure out how to integrate it. And so I think mm -hmm. sometimes you got to stop begging the people that are supposed to give you and like build the power. And I have no problem talking to you offline about ways that we could provide that support to like That's figure right. out how to build around that community that knows that those people are worthy of help um, and are deserving of help. They don't have to crawl to get the help. And I think if you already have that resource, there's a way to build around them. In the meantime, while yep. you're working with Cassandra, have your wife call Legal Action Center because oh. suing the out of people, <laughs> the general counsel of that hospital needs to be made aware of what laws they could possibly be violating by denying people emergency room and other kinds of care based on their disability. That's right. So. You can call us and our number is right on our website, lac.org. There is a lot that's happening around acknowledging addiction as a health issue. And it's one of the strategies for dragging people into doing what they're supposed to do. Well, I definitely wanted to thank you, ladies, for taking your time out this morning to come talk to us. I think it's incredibly important to inform people and to spread this kind of awareness and message to more people so that we can change attitudes around this topic, but even more so, or at least along with that, just celebrating people who are doing something about this, right? To celebrate Cassandra and all the work she's done, to celebrate Tracy and all the work you've done for all the years you're doing it. Like, I don't know how often people congratulate you, but I hope that we can take this time right now and just say thank you. Like, thank you for this work, man. This is stuff that not everybody is doing, and we appreciate, for sure. Go ahead, we know people love the statistics, but you can just just Google it. Yeah. yeah. Well, and you guys are standing up for people that, and again, in our community, like, people do have the attitude of, like, drug addicts, you know, they don't matter. They don't lock them up, and who cares, and let them die, and you got to really fight back against that, you know, for people that sometimes don't even care about themselves, you know, they're, <laughs> they're right. living in harming themselves and they don't realize that it takes that love and connection of a community to lift them up out of that. That's right. right. So it is beautiful and it's, it's thankless work. You know? <laughs> I know my wife's involved in it. The one thing I did want to say, because Jason, I know you said, thank you. I do want to thank Tracy because I think that I came into this space when so much had already been done and there was 
a desire for change and a difference. I think people have been really beaten down and realized that what was happening wasn't working. And so it's easy to come in when everyone's already like, well, shit, we'll try anything, you know? <laughs> and then I'm like, all right, go, let's do all these things, right? It's more difficult to do it when nobody knows better or the people that do know better still don't want to do better and for people to stick around. So Tracy's been in this space for a very long time and a lot of people left and Tracy didn't. And she has been saying the same thing for a very long time. And yes, she's been learning and everyone learns. And I'm sure she knows way more now than when she did in 1989. But she's stuck with it and she stayed in the space. And it's like her work that made it possible for me to come through, right? Like I stumbled on different things than Tracy did because Tracy stumbled already and was able to guide. I think the drug policy movement had a lot of like Black women that came in and like did amazing work and then were pushed out. And Tracy's one of the few that got to like, you know, just keep pushing and then was nice when she met me when I was super young. And that often, sometimes that doesn't happen. <laughs> like, that's true. Helps you that's practice. true. And no, she didn't have, she didn't always have nice black women working with her. Right. And she did different. And so I just wanted to acknowledge that and thank Tracy about mm. just sticking it through and like doing it and, and not just talking about like, there are multiple reasons why Tracy could have stopped based on like institutional racism in our, in our movement. And she did it and she keeps doing the work and she does it brilliantly. And it's why she's like the national coordinator of the Black Harm Reduction Group for us because she understands what it means to build systems and like how to navigate. And it's been really dope. And I'm glad you said yes to coming on. All I would say is that idea of being the phrase, I'm my ancestors' wildest dreams. That's Cassandra. It's like, why do the work unless you know and have to believe that a Cassandra is coming? And that's what made it all worth it. It's just like, I'm standing on shoulders and I want to be shoulders for someone else to stand on. And for the dynamism that Cassandra brings to this work, it just made all of the ass kickings from before completely worth it. Completely. It is a joy to see her. And we appreciate this podcast because... For me, it's a whole new world of getting the word out, if you will. And I'm sure you're reaching people that hundreds and thousands of philanthropy dollars would not have been able to enable this kind of connection. The gratitude is for you two as well. Whatever reasons you had, and I'm sure they were great for starting this, and I'm sure you've saved more than a couple of lives just, just by doing this podcast. I know Thank it. You. Well yeah. Okay. You're both Thanks, amazing. Guys. Thanks again. Thank Appreciate so it so much. Take care. Thank you. Man, what a great conversation. Incredibly informed people on the topic for sure. You know, there was so much we didn't get to. I know you and I both had a ton of questions that we wanted to ask that there just wasn't time for. The work they've done, both uh, organizations that they're involved with, Legal Action Center and Drug Policy Alliance, the Oregon bill that just got passed into law, they were both part of the organizations that championed to get that into a voting measure to begin with. And if you don't know about that, you know, Oregon has just decriminalized all drugs, which is an incredible move forward for somewhere in the United States. We talked to Daniel when we talked about smart recovery, and he talked about some of these kind of measures in Canada 
of the progressive harm reduction and, and drug decriminalization. And I thought at the time, yeah, that'll never happen anywhere here. <laughs> but I mean, here we are. And these two ladies were part of the process. The fact that it passed and, and is now law. And now, even if it doesn't take off immediately everywhere else, we're at least going to start to see the research and the statistics on how it works out and if it's a better policy and what comes out of that. Okay, okay we decriminalized it. Well, now we're going to realize all these other needs that we have to put in place of decriminalization. Like, well, now we need to address this from a healthcare angle, kind of like Tracy was talking about, included in the healthcare model. And how do we do that? What's the best practices? Yeah, and I think the more conversations we have with different people involved in the recovery movement, the more I come to understand, again, as Tracy said, this is like we really need a holistic approach. Decriminalization is a great first step. But just decriminalizing drugs is not going to fix the addiction problem. In fact, it might even in an immediate aftermath make it a little worse. But we're going to need to make sure that the resources are there for recovery, how we get people connected back to their communities, how we get them connected to a bigger society. And I think that starts with the decriminalization part, stop shaming people for using, stop putting them down. But yeah, the conversation with that subject alone could be a topic of its whole own podcast. <laughs> I know. I know we definitely want to talk about that. And maybe we can get somebody, if not them, somebody from their organizations that would like to come on and talk about just the research of different places that have decriminalized or legalized and what that bears out statistically down the line. I would love to know more facts about it because I personally, I've done a little research and it's like enough to make me think that that's definitely the way to go but I would love to be more informed about it so that I can better tell everybody how wrong they are when they want to do law and order. <laughs> yeah, but, but I love conversations centered around recovery and changes and, and going forward and how we start to address this. And, and I really did appreciate, you know, both those ladies coming on and spending their Sunday morning with us. I mean, it's so much fun. You could tell they had passion for their work and, you know, that's what it takes to really make a mark, to make a difference in this I don't know what you want to call it, entrenched bad policies of the last hundred years. Right, right. And, you know, look, I mean, ultimately, my hope and goal for life is to have less people who struggle with problematic substance use disorder die or struggle or have really bad outcomes, right? I, I want better outcomes and things that work. And while I love the 12-step community, while I love some of the harm reduction methods we've come up with, I still don't think we're to the point where we really have good solutions that have high success rates, right? Like, I still think most of what we do is failing or not working well enough. And so I think it takes these outside-the-box ideas to, like, move us towards something that works better, something that gives more positive outcomes for more people. I don't think we're getting there, like you said, in the direction we've been going. All right. So definitely, if you guys get the chance, you can go to Legal Action Center's website. That's LAC.org and check them out. They've got a whole slew of information. If you were interested in learning more about policy reform or any of the subjects that Tracy touched on, they've got a bunch of it. As for Cassandra's organization, Drug Policy Alliance, they are located on the web at drugpolicy.org. And they have some really interesting stuff you can definitely check out. They have just a little, if you like the history of drug policy, 
in a short blurb, they got S. Carter, good old Jay-Z, narrating a, a four-minute video that I enjoyed. And, you know, you said you enjoyed yeah, it enjoyed as well. It. Yeah. yeah, and the artistry on it was incredible. I know we mentioned Jay-Z because he's a, a name drop, but, like, the person who did the artistry on it was Yeah, the animation phenomenal. Yeah. And just there's such a wealth of information that I think we don't take the time to look into. Like, did I know that the drug war had negative outcomes towards, you know, minority communities? Yeah, I knew that already. But did I ever look it up to see exactly how bad it was? Not before I needed the research for this, right? So there's sites out there where this information is easily digestible and easy to understand and in short blurbs because they know our attention span isn't that long. Though if you listen to our podcast, maybe you have a great attention span and I (laughs) applaud you for having such a wonderful attention span. But these sites are places to go if you're interested in being involved. Like both of the ladies mentioned, it takes us getting involved. You know, and I think you just said that recently. It takes these grassroots movements. It takes us all getting educated and pressuring, you know, the politicians that we elect. And it takes the information and it takes us, it takes us telling our neighbors. Who's got a neighbor that will never, ever be introduced to the idea that racism is still real if it wasn't for you, right? Like, who, who's got that neighbor? They're not going to be reached by anybody else. And so it does take us all to be informed and to stay abreast of the new topics and to spread this information and champion for something different. Like, we deserve better. We as a population deserve it. I believe Cassandra brought up, too, like, that's where we can make the most changes in our immediate communities in our local policies in our local laws you know we we begin changes there and hopefully they build momentum it's really hard to change national policy it's not quite as hard to change some of our local policies yeah i mean we see that with marijuana still being listed as a schedule one narcotic and yet it's legal in a bunch of states at this point 15 and the district i believe is the current number so it's like yeah we can affect our local policy quicker at least i don't know if we can affect it more but we can definitely affect it quicker so any other thoughts about drug policy today no i think i'm good again i could talk about it for hours but i will rest on what we've talked about so far (laughs) awesome so i hope everybody enjoyed this and we will see you next week share this podcast with people in your life who might enjoy it Check out recoverysortof.com to find our episodes and link up with us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. We're always looking for new and interesting ideas for topics, sort of. If you have any ideas for episodes or think you have something to come on and talk about, reach out to us. <laughs>